0: now so don't forget we're recording uh these uh the the conference over the next two days uh, and those will be at some point uh hopefully in, in the next week posted to our church's website uh, and so uh, you should have, be able to access audio recordings uh, that way. And then, as many of you have already discovered, uh, there are a limited number, and an increasingly limited number of uh, books and T-shirts in the Fellowship Hall. Uh, we tried to provide those at a discounted price, um, under what we paid for them, just as a as a service. We're making well, I, we're making no money off of this, uh, but uh, our hope is just that it could be a service to provide you with some resources. Um, and we've sold out of some of the books that, that we had already. Uh, uh, Westminster Bookstore, uh, we have uh, uh, bookmarks there. It's a wonderful resource uh, for uh, for reformed and academic uh, uh, books. And uh, so uh, anything that we have, everything we ordered came from there. Uh, so make use of that. Well, it is a, it is a blessing and a privilege uh, to have you here tonight. Uh, uh, if you will, we're going to open up by singing... Uh, Uh, A hymn, and I think it's appropriate. This is, uh, uh, if you if you want to stretch it out, this is Reformation Month. Uh, uh, Of course, the 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 Protestant Reformation uh, took place uh, toward the end of the month, of course. But um, if you will, we're going to sing together, uh, standing and singing together. Hymn number ninety-two. A mighty fortress is our God. Hymn number ninety-two. God and King, we thank you, O Lord. We thank you that we can sing a glorious hymn to your glorious praise. We pray, O Lord, for your blessing upon us now. We pray that you would bless us as we enjoy this time together in this conference. We pray, dear Lord, that you would impress upon us the importance of confessing our faith, the importance of ancient documents, the importance of carrying and passing down the traditions of the church in creedal and catechetical form. We pray, Lord, for all of these things so that you, O Lord, might be given all due honor and glory and praise. We pray, dear Lord, that we might hold fast to the faith once handed down to the saints. Lord, we pray above all else that in our time together through tonight and the next two sessions tomorrow morning that you would be glorified. We pray, we pray, oh Lord, that we would be built up in our faith. We pray that your church, the church of Jesus Christ, might be more firmly established in this land and in our area. But Lord, we do pray We pray that you would be glorified. We pray for your blessing upon your servant, the Reverend Carl Truman. We ask, Lord, that you would bless him as he teaches us, as he leads us. But We pray again that all glory and honor and praise would be rendered unto your holy name. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it is indeed a privilege to have uh, the Reverend Dr. Carl Truman here with us uh, at this, uh, again, as we say, uh, hoped to be our first, our inaugural uh, annual uh, Reformation conference. Uh, Carl Truman is the Paul Woolley Professor of Church History at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He uh, came there in 2001. He's been teaching there since he received his phd from the university of aberdeen in 1991 and his dissertation for his phd was published later by oxford university press under the title of luther's legacy salvation and the english reformers 1525 to 1556. it deals with luther's impact on the english reformation i haven't read this book we have no copies of this book unfortunately on our book table because the church simply can't afford it. It's too it's too expensive. Uh, so look it up online if you wish to have it. Uh, it's I'm sure it's a wonderful addition. It would make a wonderful addition to your library. Uh, but we're holding off on uh, on having it uh, in stock here. Uh, in addition to his responsibilities as uh, as a professor at Westminster, since 2012, Dr. Truman has served as the pastor of Cornerstone Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Ambler. PA. And uh, I haven't asked him which uh, which uh, 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 calling is, uh, is more difficult, <laughs> being a professor or being a pastor. I don't know that I want to know the answer to that question, uh, but, uh, but he's been serving there now for, for two years. Uh, Dr. Truman is married to his wife, Katrina. Uh, they have two college-age sons. And just a a little bit of history. Uh, My wife and I uh, first met Dr. Truman, and he may not remember this. Uh, We uh, went up in the fall of 2002 to Westminster Seminary for a, it was uh, just a a visitation of the seminary. We were trying to figure out where uh, I needed to go uh, for my seminary training. And uh, we went on campus, on on the way up I should say from North Carolina, we listened listened to a recording of, uh, it was a lecture that you had given or uh, possibly a chapel talk that you had given at some point. so we decided that if we have a chance, if we happen to run into Dr. Truman, maybe we'll just try to sit down and talk with him. And so we were wandering around in the, the faculty uh, area of, of the library where all the faculty offices were, and we'd met with one professor already, and and uh, we, we peeked through the the little window in the, in the door, and, and there sat Dr. Truman, and uh, we just... Completely uninvited, knocked on his door, and he welcomed us right in. And we sat down in his office for uh, probably ten minutes, maybe fifteen minutes. And warmly welcomed us. And it was—it had an impact on our decision uh, to be able to uh, uh, very much impromptu uh, sit down and, and meet uh, and, and talk about the seminary. And it—it uh, it, it was a factor. It played into uh, our decision to to go to Westminster. Um. Well, a little bit about the topic of the conference. You wouldn't be here if, uh, if the topic—creeds and confessions, catechisms—that these weren't important to you. Uh, perhaps some of you, uh, for some of you, they. Uh, this is a new idea, um, but it, but it's especially important. It seems in in our day and age, and it seems especially in this country, uh, where there has been a casting off of anything that seems to be old. Or ancient uh, those things seem to be uh, are seen as irrelevant and unimportant uh, but what uh, we hope uh, will be instilled in each of us here uh, through just these few hours at this conference is that this is indeed the, the, the creeds and the catechisms of the confessions they, they encapsulate the faith that was once handed down to the saints And it is of vital importance. And you see in Christ's church, when the church uh, does away with the creeds, when they eschew the creeds, that they very frequently, very commonly, lose their bearings. Uh, They they lose sight of what truly is important uh, to the church. The creeds by no means are meant to be a replacement for God's Word. But they ought to be. Uh, uh, Creeds at their best are uh, are a summary of, of God's Word. They, they encapsulate in a very succinct uh, 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 summary uh, what God's Word teaches, the essentials of the faith. And so they are of vital importance to us now, I think in this day and age. Well, it is an honor uh, to welcome uh, Dr. Truman uh, before you this evening. Uh, uh, our prayer is that this will be a great blessing to you uh, and, and to all of us here. And so Dr. Truman, uh, come on up and uh, and Please uh, teach us.
1: (laughs) Well, it's a great pleasure to be here this evening, and uh, great pleasure to see Joe and Jen again. I'd completely forgotten. I have no recollection of that. You—you sure it was me? That's the. uh, But it's always a relief to know that I didn't put somebody off coming to Westminster. That's nice to know. Uh, Well, I want to talk uh, over uh, the next two days, as Joe has said, about creeds and confessions. Some of the material I'm presenting reflects material in in my little book, The The Creedal Imperative. Uh, Some of it represents uh, things I've thought about since that time. But I want to reiterate, first of all, what Joe has said. I think creeds and confessions are vitally important. I think we're coming to a a point in uh, American history where... Uh, to be a Christian is going to be a positive decision rather than just be something that has typically happened as going along with the cultural flow one is going to have to know uh, what one believes and why one believes it and I think as a, a key aid to that is the history of the church and the key elements of the history of the church when it comes to knowing what you believe and why you believe it is a good grasp of the confessional or creedal history of the church. So what I want to do uh, this evening is I'm going to uh, the title of the, of the lecture this evening of is simply the basic biblical building blocks of confessionalism. I want to reflect upon uh, why confessionalism I think is actually taught in the Bible. Uh, secondly tomorrow the, the second lecture I'm going to give a very very rapid and somewhat superficial overview of the the creeds and confessions that there are available to us today uh, to use And I'm going to zero in particularly on the Heidelberg Catechism, because uh, i found over the years that people who don't like creeds and confessions uh, do like the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, The Heidelberg Catechism has a quality to it that is attractive. Uh, in a way that uh, I don't think i found in, in any other similar documents. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the Heidelberg Catechism. And even this, this week, I received an email from somebody, a very moving email, about how uh, the, the, the use of the Heidelberg Catechism had had a huge impact in their own life just in the last couple of weeks. And I'll read that to you tomorrow. And then thirdly, uh, the third lecture, I want to look at some of the practical advantages of having creeds and confessions. There's no doubt in my mind that there are churches out there with good Christian people in them uh, that are, if you like, good churches that don't have creeds and confessions. Nothing that I say in these lectures should be implying that we don't have brothers and sisters who uh, exist in non-creedal and non-confessional churches. Uh, what I want to suggest to such, though, is that all the things they hold most dear can actually be best protected uh, if you have creed or confession. So in the final lecture tomorrow, I want to look at some direct, practical uh, examples of how creeds and confessions can shape the nature of church. I'm a, 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 an English guy, and if you know anything about the, the history of, of England, uh, Napoleon described us, we're, we're a nation of shopkeepers. Uh, it didn't mean we didn't beat him in the end, of course, uh, but it does mean that we're a very, the English are kind of boring, prosaic, empirical, What difference does it make? Uh, Probably what binds us together with certain strands of American culture, I suspect. So the third lecture tomorrow, I really want to get down to, okay, what difference does it make? What practically, what what, what is the practical difference in the way that a confessional person might do church compared to somebody else? So let us start then this evening by reflecting upon the biblical building blocks for confessionalism. We are perhaps, all of us, familiar with the phrase, no creed but the Bible. Maybe we've been in churches where that has been stated. Most of us, uh, if, we, if we operate outside our own narrow church circles at any point, we'll have Christian friends who may well have used that phrase. Uh, and there can be a tendency, certainly in confessional circles, to to sneer. At people who say they have no creed but the Bible, or no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. I'm going to start off by saying, though, that that statement captures certain things that we want to acknowledge as good. And we want to, uh, to acknowledge that when people use that phrase, they're often trying to, to protect or defend something, or maintain something that is good and positive. I think, first of all, what they're trying to do is to, to maintain the fact that the Bible has a unique authority. When most people say no creed but the Bible, what they want to say is the Bible has a position of authority in my world that no other text has. No other book, no other writing, no other statement has the authority that the Bible has. And I think we all want to say a hearty Amen to that. Uh, So the first thing to, to comment about that statement is it contains a very, very important truth that the Bible is unique and nothing I say in the next three lectures should be seen to uh, I hope to impinge upon that authority of scripture secondly I think it has uh, a certain uh, feel of historical authenticity about it Uh, Joe has just extended Reformation Day over the entire month Um, let's hope they don't do the same with Halloween I just couldn't you know the kids banging on the door night after night would be It's bad enough once a year, it would be terrible, 31 nights in a year. Anybody who has any sort of vague grasp of church history, who's a Protestant Christian, knows the Reformation was vaguely, broadly speaking, a, a good thing, and knows that one of the things the Reformation did was it placed Scripture right at the heart of the Protestant project. So when people say they have no creed but the Bible, many people often think, well, that's Protestantism. That's also something very, very important historically that's being recaptured there. One of the strange things, of course, about the Reformation is the Reformers are marked by, among other things, a a seemingly limitless passion for writing confessions and catechisms. That The Reformers did that very regularly there are those massive four volumes that uh, Joel Beakey's publishing house Reformation Heritage Books have been producing over the last few years James Dennison edits them the the reformed uh, creeds and confessions of, of the 16th and 17th centuries four great fat volumes of creedal documents that were produced during the Reformation which indicates immediately whatever the reformers meant by scripture alone they didn't mean that all you actually needed ultimately in practical day-to-day running of the church was scripture. And if you think about it, most of our churches already bear testimony to that. Uh, most churches, if not all churches, use Bible translations. <coughs> you don't simply stand up and have the person at the front read out the Hebrew and the Greek on a Sunday. Uh, we also have sermons. Uh, the minister doesn't just stand up and read out the passage even in translation. He expounds the passage, he explains what it means... So right at the start, even though we, we might think that no creed but the Bible sounds Protestant, it should be obvious to anyone who knows anything of the history of Protestantism that that's going to need qualifying in some way. We're going to have to think about that. And i want to throw out right at the start uh, three questions just to think about as we work through this first lecture. No creed but the Bible. My first question is, is the principle itself actually a biblical one? Even though we acknowledge the unique authority of the Bible, does the Bible itself say that the Bible is all we need? Or are there hints in the Bible that we need other things? I'll answer the question to stop so you're not hanging on for the surprise ending. The answer, of course, is the Bible clearly points to the fact that we need more things rather than just Scripture for the well-being of the church. Paul talks about the appointment of overseers for a start he doesn't just say to Timothy make sure you've got the scriptures and keep reading them on a Sunday he says appoint overseers scripture is all sufficient but it's not everything you need for the well-being of the church secondly does anybody just have the Bible I don't think so I think everybody believes the Bible means something If I were to ask you what the Bible means, you wouldn't start at Genesis 1 and just read it from the beginning to the end to me. You'd offer me a shorter, well hopefully shorter, uh, more concise statement of what the Bible means as a whole. It's kind of like a creed or a confession, is it not? And thirdly, and this is where I want to spend more time in this lecture, I want to suggest... Well I want to ask this question, is the claims have no creed but the Bible actually an implicit repudiation of key aspects of biblical teaching and ironically more of a capitulation to the spirit of the age? One of the strange but one of the interesting things about uh, emigrating or living abroad for any uh, great length of time is uh, you become aware uh, of how things that you think are natural are actually not that natural at all. Uh, I was—I I preached yesterday in Southwestern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary, and afterwards I was having lunch with uh, Paige Patterson, the president, and he said to me, "He said you would never be more heavily protected than you were this morning when you preached." And I said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "We'd got an armed guy covering every door." Uh, he said, I got him. He said, you couldn't see him, but behind you up in the balcony, he said, there was a man with an AR 15 covering you. He said, somebody had tried anything, then maybe you got a couple of shots off, we'd have taken him down. I was thinking, well, probably we'd only taken a couple of shots in the right place to so actually finished me off anyway. Uh, but, I, And I said to him, oh, so were you in the military? And he said, no, no, I'm just a Texan. And uh, I, I, I was thinking, wow, um, you know where I come from the police just they they just carry big sticks because you know the criminals just carry big sticks and that's quite adequate for for sort of protecting the public Um, it's interesting how uh, you know 12 years ago that would have to me that would have been a deeply weird conversation now it's just a weird conversation I've sort of got slightly more used to it being here but it's an example I think a great example of how some things that seem natural and common sense to people brought up in a particular context Seem deeply weird to others. I mean, I've had this sort of the inverse conversation when an American will say, you know, what guns do your police carry? And I say, well, generally they don't carry guns. I say, they just carry these short sticks. And you have this sort of wide eyed, well, how do they handle the people with the Uzis on the streets then? Well, there are no people with Uzis on the streets. They just got other sticks and maybe a knife <laughs> if you're unlucky. Um, and that seems weird to Americans. It seems natural to the British. So what I want to suggest is that. Uh, I think there are aspects of modern culture that make us think we're being very biblical when we say we have no creed but the Bible. But actually may be really dependent upon the world we live in. And we just don't know that because it's the world we live in. It's the air we breathe. So, to lay out this case then, I'm going to say there are four basic assumptions that lie behind... My convictions about confessionalism, all of which I think have been seriously challenged in modern culture. The first assumption is the past is important, and has things of positive relevance to teach us. Problem, of course, is that confessions, by their very nature, were written in the past. Uh, As one student at Westminster once told me in the middle of a class, not only were written in. In the past, they were also written by a bunch of dead white guys. And therefore they were sort of doubly irrelevant because they were that much further distant from the world of today. If you're going to be a confessionalist, you have to have to believe the past is important in some way. We have to make a case for the past being important. If you're going to persuade people of the value of confessions, one of the things we need to persuade them of is the fact that we can learn from the past. And that's a very countercultural. Thing in many ways today. Secondly, we need to establish the case that language is an appropriate vehicle for the stable transmission of truth across time and geographical space. One of the most obvious things about confessions is they involve words. They involve assertions about things. As Martin Luther, in his conflict with Erasmus, talked about Erasmus and he said, You know, if you take away assertions, you take away the very essence of Christianity. There is no Christianity left without assertions. Confessions make assertions about things. We live in a world now where to assert truth, uh, to categorize truth as something that is susceptible to being expressed through language, is a contentious claim is a contentious claim and therefore makes confessions problematic. Thirdly, and this I think uh, is sometimes where our Christian brothers and sisters uh, trip over with the best intentions, Christian truth can be recast in other non-biblical and I say non-biblical not unbiblical there, non-biblical language. By their very nature, confessions claim to present a synthesis or summary of biblical truth in language that is drawn from elsewhere. It's amazing how many people who object to confessions because they are not biblical. Will yet use words like Trinity. When they preach. And Trinity is not a biblical word. I would argue it's a biblical concept. And it's fleshed out in the creeds and confessions of the church. But it's not a biblical word and yet still people will think that if you're using creeds and confessions somehow you're setting up something alongside scripture or you're infringing in some way on the authority of scripture even though they themselves frequently do something that is analogous to that and fourthly there must be a body or institution which can authoritatively compose and enforce creeds and confessions creeds and confessions are the property of the church not of any individual believer. Some of them are written by individuals. Every creed and confession out there will have been influenced by some individuals at the conference where it was put together more than others. But ultimately, a creed or confession has status because it's adopted by a church. Now, as as a quick sidebar here, I want to say that what I want to do in these three lectures is I don't want to make a case for Presbyterianism. I do think Presbyterianism is the best and most consistent form of church government relative to what we taught in the New Testament. That does not impinge upon what I'm trying to teach in these three lectures. What I want to focus on here is the principle of confessionalism that I think can be conveniently uh, adopted, transferred to an Episcopalian form of government or a Congregationalist form of church government. Uh, The key point I'm making here, if you like, is that you need a form of church government. Okay. Four biblical assumptions then. Past is important, language is adequate, Christian truth can be recast in non-biblical language, and there has to be some sort of institution that gives life to these documents. Challenges to these assumptions. Most obvious example, the most obvious challenges I think come to the significance and importance of history as a vehicle from which we can learn science and technology very much dominates the way we think today. It's had numerous effects on the way we think about the past. One of the most obvious effects of science is it makes us often think about the past as being mediocre or inferior. And if we're honest the past is often mediocre and inferior in many many ways. We have a dishwasher in my house. I grew up, my chore at home was always to wash the dishes for mum and dad after dinner and I hated doing it. I don't want to go back to that world. I really don't. The world is a better place because I have a dishwasher. Even more important, we now have antibiotics and analgesics and flush toilets and all of these things that make life more comfortable and convenient. It's kind of just, again, as a sidebar. I think I'm, I might be the most unlucky man in the United States of all the years to choose to go to Dallas and Omaha, Nebraska within 14 days of each other. This is the year I've chosen. Um, I'm doing a kind of Ebola 2014 <laughs> tour uh, this Reformation season. But I, you know, at least we live in a world with an integrated health system. Where there are very clever men and women, even as we speak now, on hopes, doing research to try to find drugs that will combat these terrible plagues that have emerged in the modern world. For many reasons, the modern world, I think, is better than the past. The danger, I think, comes when we allow that scientific mentality or the culture that that scientific mentality cultivates to dominate the way we think about everything. There are certain things that are better in the past. I would say movies. For movies made after 1980, it's probably rubbish as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> if it's colour, it's going to be negotiable. Black and white is, is much, much better. No, but seriously, there are many things about the past that are great and good. There are inspiring stories. There are wonderful works of art. There are great cathedrals and buildings. Uh, there are great men and women who have achieved tremendous things. There's a lot about the past, I think, that, uh, that should not be thrown away. I'm going to return to that point. But i simply want to the point here that in the scientific world, we tend to think that the past is something to move on from rather than something to learn from. Secondly, I would also suggest that the rise of technology uh, has led to a disrespecting of the past in another way. It's led to a disrespecting of the wisdom of age. In the book, I use this trivial example of being home at my mum's house, and mum lives in a beautiful, small but beautiful Cotswold cottage in the West Country of England. Uh, if you've read the book Silas Marner by George Eliot, she lives in the sort of cottage that Silas Marner would have lived in. It's an old weaver's cottage; it's got a little extension on it now, but you can go into my mother's, uh, what we call in, in, in uh, back home, her front room, uh, and there's the old fireplace and you can still see the holes drilled into the Cotswold stone above the fireplace where the weaver would have slotted his loom and in those days it would have been a two-room house, one room upstairs where everybody slept and one room downstairs where the weaver conducted his business and I can easily imagine a scene when where a young child, one of the weaver's children would have gone into this room and would have seen uh, mum or dad weaving and would have asked what are you doing And uh, the the parent would have said to the child, well, I'm weaving, and guess what? That's what you're going to do when you're older, because that's how the world used to operate in rural areas. You did what your parents did. Uh, And uh, the child would say, well, how am I going to do that? And the parent would say, well, sit on my knee and I will teach you. And you see how the knowledge flows from the older to the younger. In exactly that same room four or five years ago, uh, I was at home, and uh, I'm a Gloucester rugby fan. Uh, The Cherry and Whites are my team, and I wanted to record. It was, a, I think, we were playing Bath or one of the local rivals. It was a big Gloucester game on the television. But I got to go out shopping uh, to get some get something for Mum. So I wasn't able to to stay in and see the game. And I was trying to get the DVD recorder to record this thing. Couldn't do it. And my she would have been at the time I guess 13 14 year old niece strolls into the room asks me what I'm doing and I said I'm trying to record the game and I can't get the machine to work I think there's a design fault this sort of thing she grabs the uh, remote control off me it looks to me as if she presses a single button and everything's solved it's a it's a trivial anecdote but think about what's going on in that same room the reverse of the flow of knowledge the technology is brought in its way but the respect for age and experience has gone. I, I, the, 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 for the first time at Westminster this, this semester I qualified for a new computer uh, and they they gave me this nice Mac computer I never had a Mac before and when I came to register it you have to put in your birthday and it goes right the way back to 1990 and then there's just one box for before 1990. <laughs> and I don't know what, what that's telling me is you know if you're older than 24 you have no right to own this computer. Uh, <laughs> but it's a great example isn't it that age no longer counts as it once did we're going to come back to that point under another heading uh, in, uh, uh, in fact well, we'll do it now we can move straight on and talk about the second challenge to the past not only science and technology but consumerism consumerism is entirely preoccupied with youth it seems to me nobody pays a plastic surgeon to make them look older not unless you're on the run or something from the FBI I guess you might want to do it then but by and large we want plastic surgeons to make us look younger Uh, I didn't have the hair stripped out of my head by a plastic surgeon it's fallen out surgeons exist to put it all back in if you want consumerism has led to a preoccupation with youth culture what is the most incomprehensible verse in the Bible what is the one verse in the Bible that frankly we don't need anymore. We could get rid of it. And I mean that in the most sort of sanctified way possible. First Timothy 4.12 Let no man despise you because of your youth. It's incomprehensible that Paul would have to write that today. You can't believe. You know, that's just not an issue is it? Let no man despise you because of your youth. That's incomprehensible to us never happens. Why does it never happen? Because we live in a culture that's so preoccupied by youth. And the flip side of that, of course, is that we despise the past and we despise history. Powerful cultural forces militating against us taking the products of the past, creeds and confessions, seriously. Thirdly, I would say the disappearance of human nature. Uh, More significant, I think, than the battles over human sexuality at the moment are what those battles really symbolize. And that is that our biology is not to dictate who we are anymore. Not even our bodies are to exert any external authority on our identity. Human nature, it's not just that sexual morality is is in chaos uh, in the West these days. It's that we have lost any sense that there is such a thing as human nature which is imposed upon us and to which we are, to any degree, answerable. Why is that significant for creeds and confessions? Because if there's no such thing as a human nature that really unites us across cultures today, there cannot possibly be anything that unites us across chronological time. And that statement, yeah, it was written by a bunch of dead white men. That makes sense. It makes sense. If you don't believe in human nature to say that a 17th century document was written by a bunch of dead white guys, that's a good argument. If there's nothing that binds me together with those men in the 17th century, it works. It's coherent. It's part of the world we live in could also add I, want, I don't want to drag out the time but move on quickly I'd say uh, generations of teaching history as essentially a tale of oppression uh, when I did my classics degree in my final year I specialised uh, one of my specialisations was was ancient history it was a tale of oppression I was taught you know history is written by the victors and the job of the historian today is to try to get behind the victors because history is just written by the people who win great thing about the Westminster Confession actually is it was written by the men who lost. Uh, They lose pretty decisively in 1660 and they never come back. Uh, So it doesn't quite work if you know your history. But the general feeling about history is, well, it's it's written by white guys trying to marginalise women, or it's written by white people trying to uh, marginalise black people, or it's written by Westerners trying to to demonise the East. The way history is taught, does not promote history itself as a source of wisdom because it's just a tale of man's ruthless exploitation of his fellow man. Words, mentioned words. Words, of course, are under heavy attack. One of my favourites. Uh, I'm not a big Madonna fan at all. I'm much more of a classic rock person. Uh, but I do like that line in uh, Is It Bedtime Stories by Madonna? Words are meaningless, especially sentences. It's a great line, isn't it? Uh, it's sort of self-defeating, as it's kind of a sentence. But uh, but it captures the spirit of an age. It captures the spirit of an age that one doesn't find truth in words. One finds truth in feelings. Switch on and watch Oprah Winfrey. Uh, you'll see there that she knows it's true. Why does she know it's true? She knows it's true in her heart. Uh, words... under suspicion and there's plenty of evidence for showing that words can be used manipulatively from Nazi propaganda through to the various scandals that have afflicted modern day politicians to the advertising industry. In fact we have the word spin indicates how slippery words are often used and in a culture that is suspicious of words will be suspicious of confessions, suspicious of a religion of assertions. And finally, rejection of institutions. I would qualify this, at least the rejection of traditional institutions, political institutions, financial institutions like banks, etc., etc., under deep suspicion. Interestingly enough, the institutions of pop culture seem to get away with it, Apple being an obvious example. Uh, It fascinates me that was there ever uh, 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 a company that so ruthlessly exploited the people who buy its products with built-in redundancies and yet people love it so I wish we could all make money that easily you know I'm going to exploit you and boy you're going to queue up seven days before the shop opens to buy the thing that I'm exploiting you with how do they pull it off that's just a a rant on the side that's not particularly relevant to creeds and confessions it's just a a, a bugbear of mine but there is a general suspicion of institutional authority and I might suggest that in some ways I think it's deeper in America than it may be elsewhere Uh, Back home, I, I grew up thinking, you know, big corporations are the enemy and government's the one that saves you from big corporations. Over here, it seems big corporations are often the friend and government's the enemy. I suspect they're both the enemy, really, when you sort of peel it back. But there is a deeply ingrained suspicion of authority, particularly, I think, in American culture, that makes it difficult to sell the idea of the institutional church and therefore difficult to provide the context for creeds and confessions. Okay, I want to debunk each of these assumptions now, as we cl- in the closing uh, uh, quarter of an hour or so of this of this lecture. First of all, I want to suggest that history is extremely important. First of all, we have a God who is a God who works in and through history. We have a God who has Himself entered history, supremely, of course, in the incarnation, and the incarnation is historically determined in many ways we have those genealogies at the start of uh, uh, Matthew's and Luke's gospel we're told that Christ came when the time had fully come there is a historical trajectory to what God does that shows that he's interested in history and indeed much of the significance of Christ is rooted in the prehistory of Israel so the past is fundamental we might say to the identity of God not that God changes But the revelation of God's identity is one that comes to us through history. Secondly, the past is fundamental to the identity of God's people. Preaching this weekend, the first of a couple of sermons on the fourth commandment. And I'm not really even going to get to the fourth commandment in the first sermon. One thing I want to, the point I want to make in the first sermon is, time is important and the rhythm of time is important and the progress of time is important. It's what often grounds the identity of people. You see it in, uh, you know, think about the way you think about your own lives. If I were to say to you, remember that occurrence, when did it happen? You might respond to me and say, oh, it was around about July the 4th. Or I think that was around about Thanksgiving. Or it was just after Labor Day. Think about what you're doing there. You're measuring time in a way that reflects your historical identity. The American calendar is set up in a way that speaks eloquently about American history. Shapes the way you think. If you're back in the United Kingdom you have a different set of dates that reflect British history we're very historically determined people even though we may despise history there are many ways in which it does unconsciously shape how we think even about the rhythm of time itself and that pervades scripture of course think of the great festivals in the Old Testament what are they there for they're not just there for they're not really there ultimately for God's benefit they're not just there for fun They're there to remind the people of God of the great saving acts of God in history reinforces their identity in the present. So history is fundamental to the identity of God's people. Why do we have the Lord's Supper? Well, the Lord's Supper, there's a rich theology that lies behind the Lord's Supper. But part of it is, it's historical. There is a memorial aspect to it. It's a reminder of certain things in the past. There's more to it than that. I'm not a Zwinglian. There's more to it for me than that. But it is, if nothing else, historical in its orientation. And history of course is written. If history is not important, why is a considerable amount of scripture written down? History is vitally important to the people of God for knowing who they are. And I have a note here, I say history is written down and ritualized through those great festivals in order to reinforce who we are. So the first thing one could say uh, when talking about creeds and confessions is well, the the culture may tell us that history is important Scripture says otherwise. Scripture, we're always thinking about the past we're always learning from the past that basic principle of history being important as a didactic presence in the present is important and it's embedded in Scripture itself. Secondly, of course, Scripture teaches The reality of human nature. It teaches there's a fundamental distinction between creator and creation. But then it teaches that human beings are distinguished from all other creatures. Human beings all possess the image of God. Adam, the father of us all, received the mandate for subduing the earth and naming the creatures. You say, well, doesn't that all get shattered at the fall? Well, no. Paul is quite happy to assume, assume the unity of human nature in, in an argument that I think is absolutely critical for thinking about how we relate to culture and context today. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is a brilliant example of Paul both acknowledging the importance of cultural context and then showing that ultimately it doesn't have any importance at all talks about Jews and Greeks and what does he say he says well if you're a Jew if that's your cultural context if that's a cultural conditioning you've received then you're likely to look at the cross as a moral offense if you're a Greek if that's the kind of education the kind of cultural context that you come from then you're likely to look at the cross as foolishness a bit of stupidity and then he goes on to say what he says but none of it matters Because unless you see the cross as the power of God to salvation, you're perishing. Think about the assumption that underlies underlies Paul's argument at that point. What he's saying there is, yeah, there are a variety of cultures out there, but there's something deeper that binds you all together. Your culture may shape the particular form of sin that you fall into. It may shape the idiom you use to express your rejection of the cross. But the bottom line is, you're going to be held to account... Why? Because you share a common human nature. And of course, the theology for that, Paul fleshes out in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, when he sees the unity of human nature and the unity of the accountability of human nature lying in Adam. How does that apply to creeds and confessions? Well, again, it allows me to say, yeah, there are huge cultural differences between myself and the West, say, the Westminster divines way back in the 17th century. Huge cultural differences. They lived in a very, very different world to the one that I live in. But there were two things that bound us together. They share the same fallen human nature. And they share the same horizon of God's revelation. If we got together today, would we write the Westminster Confession using the same words and even maybe the same proof text? Probably not. Certainly not in some cases. Would we produce substantially the same document? I believe we would. I believe we would because there is more that binds us together than that which separates us oh and incidentally the dead white guy argument doesn't work for the uh, uh, Nicene Creed because whatever else they were they weren't white guys I'm not sure ethnically what they were but they were not northern Europeans by any stretch of the imagination so history is important there is something that binds us together with the past human nature And the revelation of God that provides that common factor. Thirdly, words are adequate. Words are fundamental to God's identity. John 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. I was chatting to a student recently. uh, who was telling me that he thinks that's one of the most. The characterization, the the naming of the second person of the Trinity as Word. Is one of the most neglected things in theology these days. That so often we take that as a synonym for the Son. And clearly the reference is the same. That to which it's referring is the same. But scripture uses the word word. It's a significant choice of words. The first thing we hear about God in Genesis is that he's a speaking God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said... God spoke. Had we been alive that day, would would we have heard a voice? Who knows? But the way scripture chooses to characterize the first action of God is speech. Speech is significant and important. Words, of course, become fundamental to human identity. God speaks and addresses human beings in verbal form. He names Adam. He establishes their basic status and their duties before him and relative to the creative world, created world by words. Human beings are verbal. I think part of our image bearing is surely the fact that we use words to do things. We may not create in the same way that God does when we use words, but we can make things change. If you're marrying a couple in church and you say, I now pronounce you man and wife, you create a marriage by speech at that point not out of nothing but you're not simply describing a state of affairs you're bringing something into being there is an analogy between the way we use language and the way God uses language think of Elisha and the Shunammite why does the Shunammite when her son dies why is it not adequate when she reaches Elisha that he, she, he send his servant off with his staff to raise the child from the dead well there are numerous aspects to that text i'm sure but one of them is this she knows that elisha is the one through whom the word of god comes she knows that elisha we might say is the one through whom god is present in israel at that point and notice the comment that her husband makes when he hears she's going off to the prophet he says, but it isn't a new moon or a sabbath why would you want to go and hear god today when it's not a special day she wants Uh, the prophet there because he brings God's words by speaking God's words he makes God present Amos 8 follows this up of course on the negative by showing us that the absence of God is demonstrated by what that God does not speak that God is silent they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord but they shall not find it. And what's Amos saying there? He said God will be functionally absent from his people. Yes he'll be sustaining the world at that point. Metaphysically. But savingly he will be absent. From his people. What is all this to say? To say that the Lord himself has chosen words. As an adequate means of creating. An inadequate way of being present with his people. So for all of the fact that human beings abuse words and use them in slippery and manipulative ways words in themselves seem to be thoroughly adequate for some very profound purposes that the Lord has. And indeed I think he passes that mandate on to his servants. Exodus 12 verses 25 to 27 talking about the performance of the Passover in the years after leaving Egypt and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Uh, Americans and British are bound together by a number of things and one of them, I think, is our inability to learn other people's languages well. Uh, I've never had an experience of Americans doing this, but I know from being abroad, uh, the most embarrassing thing when you're abroad as an English person is to be in a restaurant and realise there are other English people in the restaurant because if they can't speak the language you know what's going to happen the waiter will come and they will speak to him in English and he will say I, you know can't speak English so what they will do is they will talk louder and slower they will talk louder and slower on the assumption that sooner or later everybody understands English it's just a question of breaking through to that bedrock of the underlying English competence that everybody has Is that what Moses does in Exodus 12? Does Moses say, you know, if your children ask you, what do you mean by this service? Repeat it with more exaggerated gestures. Slower and with more exaggerated gestures. Is that what Moses says? No, he says, you shall say. It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. The truth of the Passover can be perfectly adequately expressed from generation to generation by the use of words. By the use of words. We see it elsewhere in the Old Testament when Isaiah is commissioned in Isaiah 6. He's told to do what? He's told to go and speak to the people just as Moses was told earlier to go and speak to Pharaoh. So there's a theology of words that leads me to think that words are thoroughly adequate for the conveying of divine truth. And I think then we see firm evidence of this in the New Testament. Uh, when Paul is facing the, uh, the end of his earthly pilgrimage and presumably looking forward to what the church will look like after his departure when he is gone and the obvious christ-appointed leadership of the church has vanished he writes his pastoral epistles uh, three short letters in which he really sets forth i think what he thinks are the, the the practical necessities for conveying the gospel from generation to generation and he does two simple things in those letters essentially he says you need a form of governance you need to appoint some trustworthy men and you need to hold fast to a form of sound words You need to hold fast to a form of sound words. And I think what Paul is pointing to conceptually when he talks about a form of sound words is a creed or confession. Now let me nuance that a little bit and say I'm not saying that there is nothing else that could have fulfilled what Paul is saying there. What I'm saying is that over time the church has found that creeds and confessions are the best practical way of fulfilling what Paul is pointing to there. And it's quite clear that even within the letters of Paul, he cites forms of sound words. Philippians 2. Many scholars think that Philippians 2 is drawn from a pre-Pauline hymn. Hymn in the ancient church not being the kind of hymns we sing today, but like a creed or, or, or a short confession of faith. When Paul uses... Uh, The phrase in 1 Timothy 1.15, this statement is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. It appears that he's using this uh, statement, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He's referring to a statement that is in common currency, out there, now embodied in inspired scripture. But the statement was out there before anybody knew It was divinely inspired they just thought it truly reflected God's truth so I think even within Scripture itself we find justification for thinking yeah we need to hold fast to a form of sound words and that form of sound words is not necessarily just Scripture we can have trustworthy sayings that are worth holding on to that summarize beautifully Great chunks of scripture. That's what creeds and confessions do. And then finally, and very briefly, I'll just touch on this. Maybe I'll pick up I'll pick up on it more tomorrow in the third lecture. Uh, finally, for those who reject the idea of the church's institution, what can one do? I think you've got to take them back to the New Testament. You've got to make them read the letters of Paul. You've got to make them look at what he's saying in the pastoral epistles. Paul clearly assumes that there is some kind of institutional hierarchy in the church. People are required to silence false teachers. People are required to oversee the expulsion of certain false brothers out, to be handed over to Satan so that they might be saved. It seems that whatever the culture tells us about uh, institutions being corrupt, we need to understand that the corruption of the church as an institution is not intrinsic to the fact that it is an institution. It is the result of the fact that the wrong men get put into the wrong positions of authority. So to summarize this lecture then, I want to start it off by saying uh, no creed but the Bible has some strong points. But when we start to reflect upon it and ask ourselves is the principle actually a biblical one? Does anybody just have the Bible? starts to look a bit more shaky. When a man stands up and says, I have no creed but the Bible, you can bet your life he believes the Bible means something. What he's actually saying is, I do have a creed but I'm not going to write it down so that you can't hold me to account for it. And that's different from having no creed. And I pointed out that there are four assumptions of confessionalism. The importance of the past, the adequacy of language, the legitimacy of presenting biblical truth in non-biblical language, And the existence of the church as an institution. Then I offered uh, five or six reasons why culturally these things are hard for people to swallow. And I would suggest that many of those cultural assumptions percolate into the church without us knowing about them. An analogy often used in class is you know, there are are two kinds of danger in this world Uh, there's the danger of the man with the ski mask and the uh, chainsaw walking down your street, you know. Two days ago, if that was happening, I'd have called the police. Now I'm going to phone my friend Paige and say, hey, bring the man with the AR-15 down here. I've got a job for you. But it's an obvious danger. It's an obvious danger. Then there is the sitting in your house with the carbon monoxide pumping up from the boiler downstairs. And you don't even realize it's it's killing you until it's too late and you're dead. It's that second kind of danger that I think these cultural impulses can represent. That sometimes we can be subject to the anti-institutionalism, or the anti-authoritarianism, or the suspicion of language, or the despising of history. Sometimes we can be subject to these without even knowing we're subject to them or what the sources of them are. And I suggested, finally, that each of those uh, four points that I think needs to be defended can be very adequately defended from the Bible. And then at the end, I would conclude this by saying, if you have no creed but the Bible, then you must have a creed. Because the Bible itself, it seems to me, pushes us towards having some kind of creed or confession. Tomorrow I'll give you a a short history of creeds and confessions in the church, and then we'll uh, uh, finish off with the, the, the practical lecture. Joe.
0: Well, thank you, Carl. (laughs) Definitely looking forward to uh, the continuation of the lectures tomorrow morning. Just uh, one note of housekeeping. Tomorrow morning, the doors will open here at the the church building at 845. Uh, We're going to have some donuts and some coffee and things like that for those of you who want to get out uh, here early. Uh, the, this next session tomorrow morning will begin at 9:30. 9:30. Uh, so please come on out. I think the rain—hopefully the rain will be uh, will be over by then, if, if we have it—and uh, it should be an enjoyable morning. Uh, we'll have a break at 10:30 uh, tomorrow morning, and then uh, the, the the third session will will kick back off uh, at at 11. We'll go from 11 to 12. Let me uh, close this evening session in prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you. Lord, we pray uh, that you would convict us for uh, all the ways in which we uh, hold and disdain the past, in which we uh, look down upon uh, the word, the way, O oh Lord, in which we hold and in contempt uh, institutions. Lord, show us uh, all of these ways in which we uh, undermine both your word but also so many of the precious creeds of our faith which which teach us your word. We pray for your blessing and now, O oh Lord. We pray that you would send us out. We we pray for your blessing upon a, a time of fellowship uh, here. We pray, Lord, that you would give us safety on the roads and that you'd bring us back here tomorrow morning uh, safely so that we could enjoy uh, the next uh, sessions of this conference. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, well, you, know, session. Maybe maybe so, yeah. you know, in sessions, maybe so. And I'm sure people will, you know, people will hit you up on for those uh-huh. those questions. Yeah. 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 yeah!
1: What's that? You it's seem very friendly. friendly. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs>